um, ask God's Spirit uh, to come and help us as we open up his word. Father, it's been so good already this morning to um, lift up our voices together um, and sing about the one who is our king and to sing about his faithfulness, um, to remember, as Tim has reminded us, uh, that that's where our confidence lies in a, a world full of change and uncertainty, that that's the solid ground beneath our feet is our confidence in Jesus, our King. And so, Father, I want to pray as we um, open up your word this morning, as we read a passage that is really famous and really familiar, I want to pray that it would, um, it would impact our hearts in a new way this morning, that you would have a fresh word to speak to us this morning through this familiar passage. We want to thank you that you've given us your spirit to be our teacher and to lead us into all truth. And I want to pray, with the Holy Spirit come now um, and inspire our reading uh, as we read scripture together. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, let's, uh, let's read. We're in Philippians chapter 2. Um, just to remind you... Um, where we kind of left off last week, Paul was talking about living a life that is worthy of the gospel. That was kind of our, our main sentence last week. Live a life, whatever happens, whatever comes your way, live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And now we're going to read on in Philippians 2, which begins, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, as I was reflecting this week, I, I was chatting to Ricky and I did say to him, I think it's definitely one of those passages where I'm very tempted to just read it and then say, 
nothing to add, <laughs> um, and, and, and close in prayer. Some week I will have the courage just to do that. Um, but I'm going to say a few things. Um, just a, a, um, three very quick comments by way of introduction, just to loosen the soil and kind of get us, get us into this passage a little bit. Um, first thing is, um, some people think the, the last part of what I read there, you'll have noticed maybe in your Bible, is written as poetry, in lines of poetry. Um, some people think it may have been an early Christian hymn, and so we're getting a little glimpse into what they may have sung in the early church, which is a lovely idea. Um, we don't really know. The other alternative, I think, is that Paul, as he is writing about Jesus and about the good news of Jesus, Paul kind of breaks into spontaneous poetry. He breaks into song himself as he thinks about Jesus. And I think that is probably equally likely. That is, Paul, Paul's heart is so alive with the good news of Jesus, he just he kind of bursts into uh, accidental poetry uh, from, his, from his point of view. Um, so it may have been a hymn. It may be a, a poem or song uh, from Paul. Either way, we don't know the tune anyway. Um, so uh, you can write one if you want to. Um, the second thing, quick thing, is that this is a song about Jesus, the King. Um, this can be easy to miss because um, the word Christ, um, we can kind of skip past. Um, but the, the poem, uh, the song is bracketed. Paul introduces it by saying, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he goes into the song and then the song climaxes with the words, Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, and it's easy for us to miss. Uh, we need to remember Christ is not a name. Christ is a title. Christ is the Greek word from the Hebrew Messiah, which means the anointed one, which means the king. And so every time you see the name Christ, it's referring to King Jesus, the long-expected, long-awaited king. And so whatever else this song is about, it's about the king. It's bracketed by references to King Jesus. Um, and the third thing, uh, just to mention at the beginning, is the context where Paul is writing and where the Philippians are. And we've talked about this before, but I want to remind us. Paul most likely is in Rome, which is the capital of the empire. The Philippians, as they read the letter, are in Philippi, which is a Roman military colony designed to almost be a miniature version of Rome itself. And for both Paul, as he writes, and for the Philippians as they read, everywhere around them in those towns, in those cities, there would have been reminders of the power and might and glory of the empire and repeated declarations in every public ceremony that Caesar is Lord. That would have been declared loudly and publicly. And that is the context in which Paul writes or quotes this song. And I think that's really important if we're going to hear the power of what, it, what, it, what is written here. So that's three very quick things. It may have been a, a hymn, it may be Paul's song. It's about Jesus the King. And it's in the context of empire where people are loudly declaring that Caesar is Lord. With those things quickly said, um, let's get into the heart uh, of this passage. Um, the poem, the song that Paul gives us is about the king who came down and became a slave the king who came down and became a slave. Uh, Paul says in verse 7, 
Um, by the way, I'm going to just constantly say Paul says. I'm kind of assuming it's Paul. Uh, if it wasn't Paul, you know, you know what I mean. Um, he says in verse 7, he made himself nothing. And literally what, what, what it says there is he emptied himself. It's a really evocative phrase. He emptied himself. And he says he took the nature of a servant. And actually, I, I think maybe servant is not strong enough there. The, the word Paul uses, doulos, is the normal word in Greek culture for a slave. And there are slaves everywhere you look in the Roman Empire. And so he says this Jesus who is king came all the way down, emptied himself and became a, a slave. The shocking kind of statement that Paul makes. It's not like any king the Philippians had ever seen. Um, Philippians might have tried to imagine Nero, who was the emperor at the time. Could they have imagined Nero choosing to leave his imperial palace in Rome and going to some far-flung corner, obscure corner of his empire and choosing to live as a common household slave? Was that imaginable? that Nero would have done that. It's beyond imagining. Emperors don't do that. Emperors hold on to power and position and glory. They don't give it up. They grasp it to themselves and try to grasp more. That's the, the normal behavior of kings and emperors. May I ask a question closer to home? Um, can you imagine if the prime minister or the chancellor of the exchequer or King Charles III said, tomorrow I'm going to leave Downing Street or Buckingham Palace and I'm going to come and live on a council, in a council house in an ordinary town in some corner of the kingdom. And I'm going to live through this winter of uh, cost of living crisis on an ordinary wage through this winter. Can you imagine that? We, we can't imagine it. Not even for one winter, maybe even not even for one weekend. Because those who have power and wealth and status in our world hold on to it. And Paul writes about a king who empties himself and takes the nature of a slave. It's an extraordinary story. Um, but actually, the distance this king travels is much greater than the distance from uh, than the prime minister moving to a council estate or even the emperor of Rome moving uh, to become a slave. Because Paul tells us that this king was in very nature God. So it's not just a story about the king who came down and became a slave. It's, a, it's, it's about the God who came down and became a man. Um, and this really is kind of pushing the boundaries of our wildest imagination. Um, I, I've heard somebody say, for us to try to get our, our minds inside it, we might have to try to imagine what it would be like for us to become a slug in the garden um, the, the, in terms of the distance travelled. Uh, but actually, the dis that wouldn't even get close to the distance of what we're talking about. Um, I think this is the greatest distance that anyone has ever travelled from heaven to earth, from eternity to time, from glory to grime. Um, the creator becomes a creature. Um, I don't know about you, I think for me, where the, the, the kind of wonder of it strikes me is, especially when it's, it's amazing enough to think that God became a man. 
But then to go back and think that he became a child, that he became a baby held in the arms of a mother, dependent on his parents for, to carry him around and feed him and clothe him. And even back before that, that he became a holy embryo, nurtured by his mother's blood. It's an extraordinary thing for our hearts and minds to wonder about and be astonished by. Um, in Philippi and the wider Roman Empire, we've said before, people had many gods, gods everywhere. Uh, but no one could ever imagine those gods doing something like this. Um, in truth, if you ever read about the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, they didn't care very much about human beings. Um, they, they either ignored human beings or used them as their playthings for their own benefit. Again, they were gods who were always grasping after more power and glory and trying to elbow the other gods out of the way to get more. But Paul says, this Jesus who was king and also God, who lived in glory beyond our wildest imagination in a fellowship of perfect love with the Father and the Spirit, did not consider those things something to be grasped onto, something to be used for his own advantage. But he emptied himself, he poured himself out, and he took the nature of a small, fragile, breakable human creature. It's extraordinary. It's beyond the power of any preacher to um, convey. Um, the king came down and became a slave. God came down and became a man. Um, but even that's not the end of the story that Paul tells. Um, as God, he emptied himself and became human. But then as a man, Paul says, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. The story goes further down, not just to humanity, but all the way down to death. And then, of course, Paul adds these little words at the end of that section, even the death of, of a cross. Um, he goes all the way down, not only to death, but the death of a cross. Why, why does Paul add that little phrase? Because the way Jesus died is really significant, um, not just because it was an awful and agonizing way to die, although it was, but especially because the Romans had designed crucifixion as the most humiliating way for anyone to die. You were pinned up like an insect on public display. It was a way of saying to the world, this person does not deserve to live. They are the, the rubbish and the refuse of society, um, the scum of the earth, discarded by polite society. Um, and so you can see why Paul, as he, he kind of tells this story of a descent, God coming all the way down to become human, all the way down to death, but even the lowest death imaginable. And of course, crucifixion was used primarily for the execution of slaves. So even in his death, it's the death of a slave. Um, and you can see how Paul is telling the story. The king has traveled from the highest of heights to the absolute lowest of lows, to the absolute depths, uh, deepest of depths. Um, maybe you and I um, want to ask at that point, um, but why did he make that journey? Why did this king make that journey um, of emptying himself and then humbling himself and going all the way to death? Um, and it's interesting that in this song, 
We're not told. Paul doesn't tell us why the king made that journey. Um, but we know from many other places in the New Testament, um, we know that he, he didn't just come down so he could sympathize with us and know what it's like to be human and to suffer, although that was part of the story. Um, Hebrews talks about we don't have a great high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. He has been like us in every way. He shared our humanity. He knows from the inside what it's like to be in the depths of the, the deepest of depths. And if you're in a place this morning where you're feeling like you're low and deep down, he has been to the depths with you and for you. Um, but we know from the rest of the New Testament, he didn't just come down so he could sympathize from the inside with our humanity. He came all the way down for us and for our salvation. He came down to bear sin. He came down to take our shame. Um, and actually, in the terms of the story we've been telling this morning, we could say he became a slave to set us free from everything that holds us captive, all the slavery within which we live. Um, he became human to redeem our broken humanity. He went down to death to rescue us from death. There's a song that says he came down to find us and lead us out of death. Right? He took on these things so he could lead us out. Um, so C.S. Lewis asks us to picture, I find this a really helpful image, picture a diver taking off layer after layer of clothes um, and then flashing for a moment in the air and then plunging down through the green and warm and sunlit water, down into the pitch black, cold, freezing water, down into the mud and slime. And then, up again, lungs almost bursting, back into the green and warm and sunlit water, then at last out into the sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. He came down to get something. What did he come down to get? Lewis says... He came down to get human nature, and with it, the whole universe. Um, and part of the wonder of the gospel is it's really big, but also really personal. And that means we can also say the thing he came down to get was you. Why did he make that journey? He came down to find you, to lead you out of death, right? to lead you out of captivity, to lead you into the freedom of the children of God. You are the dripping precious thing that he came to get. Um, I find that picture of the diver really helpful. Or we might read this passage in Philippians alongside the story in John 13. I find it really helpful to read the two stories together. Do you remember Jesus was sharing, enjoying a meal with his friends? Is there anything more enjoyable in life than sitting with good friends, enjoying good food? It's a comfortable, beautiful place to be. What does Jesus do? He gets up from that place of comfort and he takes off his outer garment and he wraps around himself a towel, which is the clothing of a slave. And he stoops down to the dust and the dirt and the sweat and the hairy toes of his friends. And he washes their feet like a servant, like a slave. And having done what he came down to do, he gets up and returns to his place and sits down. And it's as beautiful a picture as we get. Um, Philippians 2 gives us the big picture. Um, John 13 gives us a little intimate picture uh, of what we're talking about. Um, he came down to wash us clean. Uh, we could say 
uh, as well. And so the diver comes down and goes up again. Jesus stoops down and then goes back to his place. And so the second half of the poem tells the story of his rising up after the descent from glory all the way down uh, to death, even death on a cross. Uh, the second half of the poem tells of his rising up. And it's extraordinary, isn't it? Just told in a few sentences that God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, and again, this is where I want to make sure we hear how radical this statement is. Um, Paul is in prison in Rome, in the capital of the empire, with the shouts on the streets saying, Caesar is Lord. He's writing to people in Philippi in a Roman military colony, hearing the shouts on the streets saying, Caesar is Lord, everywhere surrounded by reminders of the power of empire and the glory of the emperor. And Paul speaks of Jesus, the son of a Jewish carpenter, who had just recently been pinned to a cross and crushed, apparently, by the power of Rome and thrown away like a piece of rubbish outside the city. And Paul says, at the name of this Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus the King is Lord. Do you get how radical that is in Paul's time and in ours? When Paul says, Jesus Christ is Lord, he's saying, Caesar is not. Whenever you and I say, Jesus Christ is Lord, we are saying, no other human authority is Lord of our lives, of our world. It's a radical statement. It can get you in trouble. It can get you in prison. Um, it can get you in hot water. Um, during the, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, um, there were two moments that I found, I'm sure there were moments you found moving and powerful, uh, but there were two moments in particular that I found really moving and powerful. Um, and they came... In the hymns, you know I like old hymns. Um, I, I, I understand the hymns were chosen by the Queen herself as she planned her own funeral. Uh, and there were two verses of two of the hymns that um, kind of floored me whenever they were sung at that funeral. Um, first, first one was at the end of the first hymn in the funeral. Um, I don't know if you heard the words, I don't know if you paid attention to them, but the, the last verse of the first hymn said, So be it, Lord. Thy throne shall never, like earth's proud empires, pass away. Thy kingdom stands and grows forever till all thy creatures own thy sway. In the middle of a ceremony full of the pageantry and um, gold and uh, things of, of human empire, um, it's a powerful thing to sing, if you mean it. All of Earth's proud empires are going to pass away, including the United Kingdom, the British Empire, just like the Roman Empire, which people thought would last forever, but is gone from the Earth. Um, and then at the end of the final hymn, uh, which is my favourite of all Wesley's hymns, um, they sang, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. That was the moment that I, f I felt profoundly moved because um, I had this image in my mind of the Queen 
having carried this crown for 70 years. And whatever you think of monarchy, that's got to be a heavy thing to carry. And I just had this image of her finally throwing it down. And what a relief that must have been to just become an ordinary worshipper, lost in wonder, love and praise, because that's where she now is. Um, but both of those songs, I think, were really deliberately chosen. And they're saying there is a kingdom that will last forever. But it's not the United Kingdom and it's not the Roman Empire. Every human empire will rise and fall. But the kingdom of Jesus will grow until every creature bows. And the thing that I find most comforting about that is that that kingdom that will last forever is the kingdom of the king we've just been talking about. It's the kingdom of the humble king, the servant king, who emptied himself and became a slave in order to set us free from everything that holds us captive, who humbled himself and went down to death in order to lead us out of death into life eternal. It's his kingdom that will last forever. We find ourselves singing what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Um, I want to, before we finish, I want to ask this question. Maybe this seems obvious to you, but why, why did Paul give us this song as Paul wrote Philippians? Um, why did he share it with us or write it for us? Um, and maybe you think, well, it's obvious to inspire faith, uh, maybe to, to inspire worship. Um, I find myself reflecting this week, many, many, many of our worship songs have been inspired by Philippians too, either directly or indirectly. Um, and so we sing... You laid aside your majesty, gave up everything for me, suffered at the hands of those you had created. And then if you go on with that song, it says, now today you reign in heaven and earth exalted. That's the Philippians 2, descent and uh, rising up. Sometimes we sing, who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. That's Philippians 2, right there. Um, or maybe my favorite, again, from one of Wesley's hymns, says, he emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. So is that why Paul, I mean, that's a good reason. Did Paul give us this, give the Philippians this, give us this? to inspire us to song, to inspire us to worship. Um, I want to suggest, uh, for the last couple of moments, Paul didn't just give us this poem, this song, to move us to song and to worship. He gave it for a very practical reason. And I think it's very easy when you're reading Philippians 2 because the song, the poem, grabs your heart and you're ready to ride away into the sunset, kind of just go and sit in the mountain and think about it. But it's very easy to miss that Paul told us why he was giving it to us. And this is what he said. He said, in your relationships with one another, let this same mindset be in you. And then he holds up for us the story, the example of the king who came down. Paul has a very practical down-to-earth purpose in mind. And it's to do with you and I and how we live together in community and how we relate to one another. There's a danger that 
we can read this poem and feel inspired and write sermons about it and write songs about it and kind of miss the point. This is how we are to love one another. And you have to go back and read the bit before the poem where Paul spells this out and he says, do nothing. As you relate to one another, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. The the literal phrase there is empty glory. Don't do anything for empty glory. Don't grasp after fame or power or success or status or whatever. That's the way of our world. That's the way of the empires of our world. Grasping after as much power and success and glory as you can get your hands on and get the biggest slice of the cake for yourself and elbow others out of the way and look to your own interests. That way dominates, I think, in our politics and it dominates often in business and it dominates often even in our social world and the way people treat each other. But if we claim to be followers of this Jesus that we've been talking about, we must walk the way he has shown us, which is the way of the cross. We've got to love the way he loved. We've got to be ready to empty ourselves of all but love for each other. We've got to be ready to humble ourselves and take the low place if by doing that I can lift someone else up. It's a really challenging thing and we've got to make sure we don't miss it. We're following in the footsteps of the servant king. And so I think this passage leads us to some very uncomfortable, challenging questions. Um, If I have been given any kind of power or wealth or status or privilege or influence, I don't know if you think you've been given a lot of those things or just a little, but if we've been given any of those things, am I going to grasp onto those things for myself? Or am I going to give them away for the good of others? Am I going to use them to lift others up? Or let me ask the question in a really down-to-earth way. Um, Am I willing to leave my comfortable dinner party with my friends to go and wash someone's feet? And that act may never be, the kind of act nobody may ever see because I see someone who needs my help and I go and do it. Am I going to sit in the glow of candlelight with my friends in comfort or am I going to go and serve in the way that Jesus, Jesus showed? It's Incredibly challenging, I think, for all of us. The the song about Jesus is beautiful. um, But I felt challenged again as I thought about it this week. The world will not believe it unless they hear that song being sung in our relationships here in the church. They won't believe it, and in some ways they shouldn't believe it if they don't hear it being sung here in our love for one another. And Jesus said it, didn't he? He said in John 13, This is how they will know you're my disciples. In other words, they're not going to know otherwise that you belong to this Jesus if you love one another. And he said a little bit later in John 17, and I find this even more extraordinary, this is how the world will know that the Father sent the Son, by your oneness of mind and heart and spirit. That's how the world is going to know that this story is true about the king who came down, about the God who came all the way down to death. They're not going to believe it unless they see it written in the fabric of our shared life together. Um, That sounds like a pretty challenging task. So I'm going to pray pray for me and for us uh, as we seek 
uh, to live that way. And we're going to sing in a moment. Maybe it's the final words I'll say before I pray. So let us learn how to serve and in our lives enthrone him, each other's needs to prefer, for it is Christ we're serving. Um, Let's pray. Um, Then we're going to sing to finish. Um, Let me just remind you, if you're feeling in need of prayer this morning, uh, for anything going on in your life or your your mind and heart, there'll be a couple of people up here to my left, your right, uh, and they'd love to pray for you. Just uh, go and ask. Um, Father, we want to say thank you this morning for Jesus, our King. We want to thank you for the kind of king he is, that he emptied himself, that he humbled himself, that he came all the way down from the highest of heights to the lowest of depths, and he did it for us, for our salvation, to set us free from slavery, to set us free from death. Um, Father, I pray that this um, gospel, this amazing good news, would grip our hearts in a new way this week. I pray that it would move us. I pray that it would move us to faith uh, and to worship. But, Father, I also want to pray that it wouldn't end there. I want to pray that this story of the servant king would be written into the fabric of our lives. And I want to pray that this week, Would you show us where those opportunities are for us to leave comfort and convenience, to go and serve someone in love? That you'd show us where there's an opportunity to give up power and status and glory for ourselves in order to love someone else and lift them up. Father, we can't live this way in our own strength and under our own steam. It goes against our instincts. And so I want to pray, would you pour your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit and make us this week that little bit more like Jesus so the world will see and the world will believe that the Father sent the Son. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.